Mosaic believes that the church is designed to be a genuine community of people, creating a safe space of belonging for all, seeking to serve our neighbors with the compassion of God, providing opportunities to learn to be more like Jesus, and living life well together. This can't happen in a one-hour time slot on Sunday mornings, yet we desire to be a worshiping, missional community in Clayton, North Carolina. Visit MosaicClayton.com or find us on Facebook, Mosaic Church of Clayton. I have a confession to make. I love Starbucks, and I know it's not hip and cool to love Starbucks. You gotta go local. Go local. But I love the smell of Starbucks coffee on my body. I, it's the weirdest thing. I know that it seems so odd to say, but I love walking out of a Starbucks and smelling like I said, hey guys, can I swim in your beans before I leave? <laughs> And I'm not talking about frappuccinos and flat whites and cinnamon dolce, latte, whatever. I'm talking about a good, bold, black cup of coffee. That's what I love. A curious thing happened in Starbucks uh, in 2016. The CEO, Howard Schultz, stepped down from his role. This wasn't the case of a corporate corruption or harassment or failed economic figures. Instead, Schultz chose to step down because he wanted to pursue the company's growing social initiatives. The CEO had grown keenly aware of the company's ability to have the power of positive persuasion within the world. And this is a company that he led that had a history of doing things like raising the wages for all employees within Starbucks, giving all Starbucks employees an opportunity to receive a free college degree, better health care, and on and on. This is a man who bought the company in 1987 and had 17 stores and by 2018 had 25,000 plus stores. And Schultz said, our organization is concerned with the vitriol and the hate and lack of respect in American society. And we know there is a different narrative. There is a different story. Change is bigger than coffee. And this was not a change that Starbucks nor Schultz was anticipating. Yet they both have stepped into it with such grace. Take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verse 10. Now, this upcoming transition um, was not one that either of us were anticipating. If you had asked me six months ago if I would be stepping away from my role at Mosaic, I probably would have laughed in your face. But nevertheless, a change begins to happen when a pastor steps into his or her calling. And this is especially true with a founding pastor. Transitions are awkward and they're weird. And there's this haunting feeling that often happens with churches where it's a feeling of, this is it. We've reached the pinnacle of all that we're going to do. So as I was prayerfully considering the messages that I would bring to you in the last couple of weeks of our time together, this theme kept popping up as I introduced last week of, this is not it. This is only the beginning for this church community. So my hope over the, this week and next week and last week included is that we'll cast a, a vision of what is to come for Mosaic. Bringing us back to the core essentials of who we are. So last week we focused on why community is so important for us. This week we're going to focus on the centrality of Jesus Christ. So Luke 13.10, here we go. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in the synagogues. Some of you are like, great, he's going to do one of these sermons where he stops after like three words. Yep, that's what's going to happen today. Context is important. Luke 
tells us that it is the Sabbath day. What is the Sabbath day? Well, remember the Sabbath day was a command given uh, through Moses that you should keep the Sabbath day holy, right? And this all comes back from uh, we learn that Jesus, or that Jesus, that God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day it says that God rested. The Sabbath day in, in Jesus' day was probably like uh, it was for my grandparents' generation and going to church. My grandparents were the type where even if they were on vacation, they were going to church somewhere. Or they were at least going to watch that, that cute evangelist on TV that maybe had a mullet or not. We're not sure. But that was the Sabbath in Jesus' day. It was uh, a very essential day to the life and work of the Hebrew people. You did all your work on six other days, but on the seventh day, you will not do that. And by the time we reach Jesus' day, there were not just one command about keeping the Sabbath. There were dozens upon dozens upon dozens of laws about keeping the Sabbath. Shabbat, the word Sabbath, means to rest from your labor. So God created the Sabbath for people, not people for the Sabbath. Last year, France held uh, one of its most bitterly uh, contested elections in years. It was between Emmanuel Macron and uh, against uh, Marine Le Pen. Now, Marine Le Pen is uh, essentially the president of the French version of Breitbart. So as far right of nationalist perspective as you can think of. And uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, won the election. I don't know if you've been keeping up with French politics, but he is kind of split on how people feel about it. We're going to talk about politics this morning. I want to talk about a recent moment that happened with Macron. Uh, he was on a dignitary trip to Australia uh, meeting the country's uh, prime minister. And in a public address, uh, President Emmanuel began to thank the prime minister saying, Prime Minister uh, Tur Turnbulls, I just want to thank you and your delicious wife for your warm welcome. Yep, that's right. He called the prime minister's wife delicious. Uh, now, speaking a little French, parlez-vous français? Actually, that means, do you speak French? So, I do speak a little French. I took French in high school. But the word uh, delicious, uh, delicio, is translated to also mean delightful. So, sometimes things get lost a little bit in translation. <laughs> See, this is what's going on with the religious group in Jesus' day. They have taken this commandment given to give rest to the people. Again, Sabbath was created for the people, not people for the Sabbath. And they have turned it into something terrible. They have allowed it to, to bring about these self-righteous perspectives of others. There are 600 plus laws that were created to enforce the Ten Commandments that Moses was given. And the priests and Pharisees were so obsessed with the law by living by the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law, which is to walk in humility with God. And their obsession with getting the exact letter of the law perfect neglected the intent of God for the law. These guys were like the know-it-all kid in school. You know the kid that throws up his hand for every single answer before you have a chance to roll your eyes, you know? That was them. They wanted to get everything right about the law. So by the time we get to Jesus' day, the religious leaders have created 39 different categories on the Sabbath alone. Think about that. 39 categories of laws around the Sabbath. Religious obsession can sometimes twist something's original intent. But the Sabbath was created by God for us, not by us for God. 
Now there's a key word here in verse 10. It says synagogue. The synagogue was much like a church of our day. It's a, a place within a town that people would gather to be taught. There was a synagogue ruler who would have much served like a pastor. So that's who we're engaging in this conversation. And look at verse 11. It says, And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what has bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delightful for all the wonderful things he was doing. There's three main characters within this text. The woman, the synagogue leaders, and Jesus. And we're going to talk about all three. The synagogue ruler, these religious people who were entrusted to care for God's people. Yet out of an act of self-righteous piety, this synagogue ruler has had enough. Luke says that he was indignant, meaning he wasn't just a twinge annoyed. He was down to the core of who he was, angry about what Jesus was doing. And what mattered most to him was that the Sabbath day was kept. The synagogue's ruler's literal translation here is, basically, you've been suffering for 18 years. It can wait until tomorrow. Don't you dare do this on God's day. I'm a little nervous for this guy every time I read this text, because you know what's coming next. And how does Jesus handle this? With a swift and verbal spiritual kick to the groin. Fantastic, right? Jesus just goes right after this man's hypocrisy. You hypocrites. Did you get the plural tense there? Jesus isn't just speaking to this one particular man. He's speaking apparently to a group of other people who are also speaking in such self-righteous indignation. Jesus goes after him. Hypocrites, meaning you, you say one thing, but then you do another thing. You put up a front this way, but you really are another way. What was their crime against the Sabbath? And Jesus says, you untie your donkey and lead it to get water. Does not this woman, a child of Abraham, matter more than your donkey? Jesus is a smart man. The same verb he uses to describe what this man, uh, what this, he has done for this woman is the same word to describe untying your donkey. Luo, to release, to untie, to set free. Jesus is giving us a very vivid image of what he's trying to do here. And Luke reports that his opponents were humiliated. And it's easy for us to read this text. And it's easy for us to begin to think to ourselves, like, yeah, you got him, Jesus. But how easy it is for us to be self-righteous religious hypocrites. We shouldn't think too harshly about the religious leader because it is so easy to head down that trail. For one, I, I doubt this man was motivated by hatred. Most religious hypocrites are motivated out of a love for God or what they suppose God desires for us. And so they think if we press our laws, if we press our religion down on someone else, that will bring about the transformation that God desires. But what makes religious hypocrisy so easy is we can find the faults in other people and fail to find the failures in our own life. 
Walking one's donkey on the Sabbath day to the watering hole is the same act as healing someone on the Sabbath. This is just a preposterous line that this hypocrite cannot get over. We see this again and again in the ministry of Jesus. The woman that is uh, there to uh, wash Jesus' feet with her hairs and tears. The self-righteous Pharisees can't get over her past mistakes. The woman caught in adultery and thrown before Jesus to be stoned by them. They believe that they are more righteous than she is. The religious leaders that are indignant when Jesus heals a man who is lowered by his friends on a mat. They can't believe that he would, quote, forgive their sins. You see, somewhere in the deep crevices of who we are, synapses begin to fire that tell us that we can constantly compare ourselves to other people, thinking we are more righteous, more godly, better than other people, and in the name of God, we begin to judge other people. We begin to condemn them. We begin to put up walls, thinking that we are much better than they are. We often think about the things going on in people's lives, their marriages, their work, their life decisions, and we begin to think of all the ways that we are better than them, more righteous than them, and therefore we begin to judge them and press them down. But I think what we need to begin to see in Jesus here is something very significant. We begin to see the rebellious nature of Jesus. You see, in It is no coincidence that Jesus, when he is crucified, is nailed between what the Gospels tell us are two thieves or bandits. The actual translation, therefore, lest I, is insurrectionist. There is a reason that Jesus is crucified between two people that are perceived to be rebels. And when you begin to go verse by verse within the ministry of Jesus, you begin to see how Jesus is constantly rebelling against the religious leaders of his day. The religious system that would press someone down like this. A child of Abraham would rather judge her and condemn her than lift her up in the love of God. We begin to see that as Jesus begins to teach, he is teaching something that is going against the Roman government that was suppressing the people at the time. The same words, Christ, is the same word for king, is the same word we translate Caesar. While the religious system clearly labeled righteous and unrighteous, pure and impure, outcast and those who were in, Jesus chose to step over those barriers to invest in people that the self-righteous religious people say you should push to the side. Dirty and disgusting lepers that were cast out, Jesus brought them in. Prostitutes and tax collectors, he said they would enter into the kingdom of God before the self-righteous religious. His message of the kingdom was for all people who would come and follow him. And then Jesus puts the punctuation mark on this with the way that he tossed out the money changers and flipped over the sellers' tables within the temple. See, Jesus was a threat to the religious system of the day. He was a threat to the political system of his day. So I wonder what Jesus would rebel against today. Stop and think about that for just a second. Jesus was an insurrectionist and a rebel against the social and religious system of his day. So what would he rebel against today? What kind of religious games would Jesus speak out against? What kind of religious laws would Jesus step over? What sort of political injustice would Jesus throw spiritual fisticuffs at? What groups of people, what groups of outcasts and so-called sinners and unrighteous and impure people would Jesus stand beside? Would Jesus heal? Would Jesus radically love? And maybe this might be a provocative question to consider. 
But if we're not standing with Jesus, rebelling against such systems, maybe we are the self-righteous religious that Jesus stood against. Stop and think about that for just a second. If we are not standing with Jesus against political and social and religious injustice, maybe we are the self-righteous religious people that Jesus would stand against. And I truly believe that Jesus is wanting the synagogue leader not to show him up, not to make him feel awful. Jesus wants to bring transformation to this man's life. Because at the, at the root of, of religious hypocrisy is a rebellion against God's love. You see, the hypocrisy of religious people it, it disperses this fog that blinds people from the transforming love of God. The synagogue ruler believed that these laws and these regulations would change people's lives, not the radical love of God. And we see this more and more in our day as Christian, Christians focus on um, the Old Testament laws that have, have gone away, that we no longer follow, yet they uh, conveniently forget the ones that they don't want to live out in their lives. I don't see many self-righteous religious people who are preaching against this sin and that sin and this lifestyle and that lifestyle um, not eating bacon anymore. See, as followers of Jesus, those have been transformed by the radiant love of God. We know that there is power in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. That is the power of Christ's love to transform lives, not religious laws and regulation. And we see this across America on every given Sunday. Churches across the world claim to be communities of God that are welcome to all people. What that typically means is you need to look like us, you need to sound like us, you need to have your life together before you can come and be a part of us. And the message preached by their actions, by these religious games, is that it is not the love of God that will transform you. It is what we tell you that will transform you. So how... Can we rebel against the love of God? It's through self-righteous hypocrisy. But what we don't need to lose sight of in this text is this woman. It is so easy for us to get all riled up about this synagogue ruler and the Pharisees that Jesus often mentions within the Gospels and rivals against to lose the fact that it is this woman who is the centerpiece of this story. Luke, who was a physician, tells us that she had been suffering for 18 years. I get annoyed when I have a cold for like three days in the six weeks in the spring when allergies are absolutely awful. Can you imagine being broken for 18 years? What did he say? A spirit of weakness had crippled this woman. And in Jesus' day, physical ailments were associated with sin. Therefore, if you were sick or had some sort of disability, it was either because of your sin or the sins of your parents or your grandparents. And Jesus does something profound in this moment. Jesus sets her free. And I love the fact that Jesus didn't just speak words of healing into her life. He didn't just identify her as a child of God. But Jesus reaches out in an act of compassion and power and frees her from whatever was crippling her for these 18 years. Can you imagine hearing these words and feeling that power within you after suffering for so long? Jesus sets her free. And it's not a religious practice. It's not a religious game. It's not some sort of religious law that sets her free. It is the compassion of God that frees this woman. 
in this act of healing and in this posture of defense for this woman, in his words of correction to the religious people, Jesus is declaring the mantra, the vision of the kingdom of God. It's not about religion. It is about the compassion of God that is transforming our lives. And the people of this kingdom, the people who will follow Jesus, are called to run towards those who are broken and not into a self-righteous lifestyle. This is the overarching message that we hear from Jesus again and again, that Jesus sets people free. Why? Because God loves God's creation. And for many of us, we can connect with this text down, maybe not to the physical nature of her condition, but maybe physically and emotionally and mentally and spiritually, we feel a sense of brokenness in our life. Down to the core of who we are, we deal with this day after day. Maybe it's caught up in, in the hell of social and mental and emotional torment. It could be that we face depression and exclusionism and guilt and shame and unworthiness and arrogance for others. It might be struggling with physical addictions or cycles within our life. But the love of God breaks all cycles. It takes all brokenness and begins to make it whole. And that's not the only thing that Jesus does in this moment. He doesn't just free her, but he also gives her value. He doesn't just say this. She is just one of many. He identifies her as a child of God, a valued person within the kingdom of God. He is restoring her back to where she felt lost from before. And what I want you to hear this morning, and I don't care if you've heard me say it a thousand times again, that Jesus desires to bring you value. We live in a world that constantly is trying to devalue us by who we are, by what we don't have, by what we have or have not done. But God brings you value, not because of something you have done, but because God loves you so greatly. God sees you, all of you, and God sees beauty and belovedness. God sees someone that God truly loves. God sees something that he wants to restore into fullness in this constant, persistent journey of making us whole. You are a beloved child of God, period. So what I want us to consider this morning is this. Where do we find ourselves in this story? Do we see ourselves in this woman who desperately seeks hope and salvation, who, who wants a sense of belonging and a sense of love in their life? Can we come to see that God loves you and values you for who you are? Can you, like this woman, choose to be healed by Christ? And to be healed by Christ not today, but tomorrow, and to journey with Christ each day. Maybe for some of us, we don't resonate with this woman but we re resonate with the synagogue ruler. Even, even the onlookers who want to devalue this woman because of who she is, because of what she has done. So we must ask ourselves, are we like this man? Caught up in our political and religious and economic perspectives that we devalue other people because of who they are, because of the choices make, because of the way they look, because of where they have come from, because they might not fit into our religious framework that we have created. Can we come to see that Jesus desires not to humiliate us, but to transform us to be a people of compassion? Or maybe we see ourselves in Jesus. And we can earnestly say that each day we are trying to live out the vision of the kingdom that is setting all people free, that is constantly trying to show grace to other people. This text, especially on Ascension Sunday, is an invitation. 
It's an invitation to be transformed by Christ, but also it's an invitation for us to run to, not from what is broken and hurting. We, like Christ, are called to go into the world to do God's business. And I'm going to be really bold here. If we are not in the business of running to the broken, then we might as well label ourselves religious hypocrites. The invitation of Christ is to go out into the world with compassion. And don't think there haven't been times in my life where it is so easy to play those religious games. When your role, when your job is to be a pastor, it's so easy to let the ministry you do only be what's done within the church. It's so easy to fail to see that when I am going about in this community that I am called to be the presence of Christ in this world. Religious hypocrisy is all about big talk, but when the rubber hits the road, when we begin to truly journey with Christ, can we come to see that it is not a self-centered and self-righteous and judgmental life, but a selfless, intentional, and grace-filled life that we are called to? Who is Christ calling you to go and touch today? The great author of the Ragamuffin Gospel, Burning Manning, shares this. The story goes, a public sinner was excommunicated and forbidden entry into the church. He took his woes to God. They won't let me in, Lord, because I am a sinner. And God replied to him, What are you complaining about? They won't let me in either. Will we be religious, self-righteous hypocrites? Or will we choose to be compassionate rebels like Jesus? Let's pray.